Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. This is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I appreciate you all listening. Uh, I'm hoping that the title of the podcast, The Composition of Bodies, uh, lured you in, maybe a little bit mysterious here, Uh, but I think you'll find it very useful, and it's something that definitely applies to the church, which is what I'm going to cover at the end, so uh, stay tuned for that. What do I mean by the composition of bodies? Well, let's take a body of people like a state legislature. How would we break down the composition of a state legislature? Typically, the way that we do it is through looking at the partisan breakdown. How many Democrats are there? How many Republicans are there? And that's one of the most important ways to look at it, obviously. But there are other ways to look at the composition of state legislatures or other bodies like that. A guy I knew when I lived in Rhode Island by the name of Lou Mazzucchelli, very smart analyst, really came up with great frameworks to think about things. He he looked at the Rhode Island legislature. He said, look, the Rhode Island legislature is you know overwhelmingly Democrat, and you think that that explains everything, but let me give you a different way to slice it. And so he said, here is the professional breakdown of the people in the state legislature. Here's how many are from big business. Here's how many are from small and medium-sized business. Here's how many are from unions. Here's how many are public employees. Here's how many are lawyers. Here's how many are from nonprofits. And what he basically showed is there is basically almost no business representation in the Rhode Island state legislature. There wasn't back in. It was heavily dominated by lawyers, uh, by public employees, by unions, etc., which I think is often the case for blue state legislatures. They're dominated by what you might call political class people. And so he says that explains a lot about the kinds of legislation that that come out of there. And, uh, you know, I, it really resonated with me because, you know, my state senator, for example, who, who his mom lived in my building, so that's how I, I knew him, uh, he was a school teacher. He was a public school teacher. And so those are the kinds of people who are state legislators in Rhode Island. And, you know, the same thing applies to other states. You can look at other states. So I'm in, in, in Rhode Island's a blue state. I live in Indiana now. It's a red state. And, you know, the, the state legislature's in session, and they're proposing all this legislation, which is really sort of anti-Indianapolis legislation. It's designed to essentially preempt, uh, you know, local government in various ways. They're attacking the transit system and other things like that. And, a group of 60, over 60 executives, mostly from the bigger businesses in town, signed a big open letter that they published in the paper saying, leave Indianapolis alone, you know, continue to empower the city to, uh, you know, chart its own course because the economic engine of the state and, you know, blah, 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 right? They're complaining to the state legislature, don't do all this stuff. And, you know, Indianapolis region is, you know, um, I would say fairly large employer dominated. So we have a higher share of our jobs than an average city among people with 500 or more employees. And so I I looked at that list and I said, how many employees of the companies that signed, whose executives signed that letter are uh, actively serving in, in the state legislature? And I'm pretty confident that the answer is zero. So what we see 
is that bigger businesses in the state of Indiana, um, you know, do not have any, you know, representation by their employees in the state legislature. These kinds of companies prefer to get their way through lobbying traditionally. And I think it used to be more common that large companies might have employees who would run for a state legislature. Uh, but, you know, that creates political difficulties because then the company is sort of seen, you know, it seems it's kind of foreseen as a conflict of interest with with kind of the, the corporate brand. And so they've kind of gone away from that as a result that these big businesses now have no representation in the state legislature. Although, obviously, again, they're very powerful lobbyists. And so you start asking, well, who is in the Indiana state legislature? Uh, and I haven't looked at it in extreme detail, but it seems to me that there are a lot of very small business types, farmers, funeral homeowners. Apparently there are multiple people who run funeral homes uh, who are in the legislature. And, you know, it makes sense that these, you know, this legislature would be dominated by, um, you know, these kind of small business types because, you know, like a lot of state legislatures, Indiana has a part-time uh, legislature uh, yeah, so legislators get paid almost no money. Uh, your, your, you know, your salary is dirt. So basically, you have to have enough money to essentially take a, you know, two, three, four months away uh, a year away from your job uh, in order to go hang out at the state house in Indianapolis. Well, how many people can do that if they have a real job? Right? Basically, nobody. So, who runs for legislature? Right? It's going to be people who are essentially in business for themselves, um, often small businesses, um, or it's going to be people who are essentially activists. So it's going to be people who work for nonprofits or lawyers, people whose uh, participation in the legislature is essentially an extension of their professional life. And so this is what you see. These red state legislatures are sort of dominated by the petite bourgeoisie. And that explains a lot about their behavior explains why they're so like militantly anti-regulation because, you know, big businesses actually kind of like regulation, right? Small businesses tend to have very parochial interest. They tend to want the government to stay off their lawn and things like that. So a lot of the, a lot of the mentality of these red state legislatures comes out of the composition of the people uh, who are in them. So again, big businesses, they don't want to have the political headaches of having their own employees in the legislature. They prefer to do the backroom deals, but in some cases that hurts themselves, right? And you start looking at this Indianapolis situation and, you know, you'd have to say some of these companies maybe have no one but themselves to blame uh, because they've never decided to engage in the political process electorally by, you know, saying, hey, maybe maybe some people who work for our company should be in the state legislature so that we have at least some, you know, bigger business representation in a, you know, in a city, again, where, you know, a, you know, a fairly significant percentage of the overall employees are in these larger companies. And so this is an example of what I mean by the composition of bodies. We have to look at who are the kinds of people that we see in these various institutions. So I think there's a lot of different ways we could slice it. One of them is to look, again, I think at professional background tells you so much about a person. So I come from a consulting heritage. I spent the first 15 years of my career working primarily at Accenture, the company that's now called Accenture, doing consulting work for clients. And you'll see I'm always putting up things like two-by-two two matrices, frameworks, things like that. I see the world 
through the lens of a consultant. Your your professional background, you know, explains a lot. I've often said, for example, professional background explains why uh, so many of these cities are constantly pursuing economic development through big publicly subsidized real estate projects. If you went back to, say, the 1970s, uh, for example, um, or even the 80s, you had a lot of local banks, you had local retailers, local manufacturers, um, you know, there were local, locally owned electric companies. And so a lot of the business leadership of cities was made up of operating businesses that were very tied to the city. So a banker makes money by taking in deposits in the form of, you know, taking in money from deposits and loaning it out, right? So that's, they make their money on the spread. So a banker is making his money at the golf course at three o'clock because he's got a cash register back at the office that always starts ringing. Well, you know, when with bank mergers and with electric mergers and, you know, all, all the mergers, like a lot of these old operating businesses are now uh, part of big national roll-ups. You know, the local head of the local bank is really not a power player in the way that he used to be when it was, a you know, an independently owned bank. And now a lot of the power players are the businesses that are left, which are a lot of them are what I call transactionally oriented businesses, law firms, construction firms, architecture firms, things like that. So those kinds of people prefer civic projects that generate transactions, right? You want to issue bonds so that the lawyers have to do things, you know, architecture fees, construction companies, all that stuff. It plays together to create an incentive structure around generating transactions backed by the public sector that all these companies can feed on. Whereas an old school banker or electric company executive wanted to grow the local economy because that was how his business could grow because these were geographically restricted entities. So I think it's always interesting. Look at people professionally. Where did they come from? You could also look at it geographically. Where did they grow up? You know, what part of the country are they from? Are they from a rural environment or urban environment? You know, I think there's a lot. There's a lot you can learn from that. What's the educational background, right, of someone? Did this person go to an Ivy League school? Did this person go to a state college? I mean, you know, little things like that say a lot about things. And again, I think we need to go beyond a lot of the norms. We're always looking at, okay, political party or a kind of ethnic or racial backgrounds. Those are important, obviously, but there are just a lot of different ways to think about the backgrounds of people and then to analyze organizations in terms of the profiles of the kinds of people who are in them. And so that brings us to churches, because churches are the same way. And I would specifically want to think about it in terms of the people who lead churches. Now, in, in the Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, um, the, the churches are led through bishops, right, and priests. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clerical structure that controls it. But in many Protestant churches— um, you know, um, Presbyterian churches, certainly, but m many other ones. I mean, I think Episcopal churches are essentially this way, even though it's kind of a bishop system, is you essentially have a local board of elders or a church council or a vestry or something like that that is, you know, charged with making the decisions, okay? And, you know, my impression of these, you know, elder boards and all of the churches that I have attended is it tends to skew towards the richest people in the church, which I guess at some level uh, makes some sense because 
you know, uh, church giving, there's, there, there's church giving follows a Pareto distribution. So if you don't know what a Pareto distribution is, it's like the 80-20 rule, right? So 20% of your people are going to give 80% of the money. And that's not a hard and fast rule, right? But, it, you know, probably a, a relatively small number of people are writing a lot of the biggest checks that are paying a lot of the bills in these places. And so naturally, you care a lot about what those people think because, you know, at some level, you can't afford to alienate them. So you end up with a, um, you know, a, a you know a church elder board that's made up of kind of like higher profile business people and things like that. And so I think this has some implications for you know how that church is going to function. So for one thing, you're, you're going to end up with a more of a limited perspective. If you end up with sort of all ballers uh, on your on your elder board, then that's not really necessarily reflective of the congregation. I don't think you need to like truly reflect it. You want the best qualified people on there. Um, but you do end up with a sort of limited perspective uh, from those professional backgrounds. And I think one of the things that's very key and very clear uh, for some of these people who work in sort of corporate positions or in even if they own businesses that have sort of a, a bigger public profile is that a lot of these kinds of people cannot take much heat, right? They cannot handle bad press, they are essentially what I would call reputation fragile. So if you are the CEO of a publicly traded company, right, or a partner in a hedge fund that is, you know, a big, you know, big public hedge fund associated with a major company, and those are both examples of real elders that I know, no matter how great a guy you are, you know, you're someone who, if the New York Times started writing articles about your church saying what a bad place it was, you're going to be under a lot of pressure because it's going to bleed over into your professional life. There's not going to be any way to cleanly or completely separate, you know, your personal professional life from, um, say, at, you know, say, you know, the church business and what it is. So when, when someone, when bad things start being written about your church and you're like an elder in that church, that's going to affect you professionally, potentially if you're in like a, you know, a traditional large corporation. So to the extent that the elders or the leadership structure of a church is reputation fragile, fragile to the press, you know, fragile in the Taleb, you know, in the Sim Taleb sense of the world, then your church is basically going to be fragile as well at some level. And so that's why I think, you know, to some, we need to be thinking very intentionally about the compositions of these elder boards or leadership boards in terms of the background of the people who are on it. Because you want to have enough, you know, diversity of backgrounds and enough uh, enough people on there that are going to be less susceptible to sort of secular pressures um, so so that, you know, you, you don't end up, you know, you don't end up having kind of a pain point come in and then the thing just sort of deforms. And so again, I just think, that is one of the things that we tend not to think about um, when we think about these these boards. And, you know, again, I don't have all the, you know, I'm not going to say you need to have this, you need to have this, you need to have that. But I do think we need to take a look at is, okay, is this group of people going to have structural weaknesses because too many of them come from very similar milieus or backgrounds? Because the milieu or background of the people who are there is going to affect things. And so I think this is the way, and I mean, if I would look at this, I'd look at this in my church. You would look at it at, 
you know, a, a board. You could look at it as any sort of a, a nonprofit board. You could look at it as a legislature. You could look at it in any way and just ask, what are the kinds of people who make this up? Where do they come from? It'll often give a lot of insights into um, how that organization is going to function, what its dynamics are going to be, what its strengths are going to be, what its weaknesses are going to be. And then if we're going to be someone who's got a stake or a say in how things get structured, you know, we need to to think about those, not just some of the other things because it has a big impact on it. So that's a, that's a, that's a little uh, a little tidbit to way you could look at legislatures, you can look at your church by looking at sort of the professional, educational, geographic backgrounds of the people who are in it. Often gives you some surprising insight. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.